It's Friday, August 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As colleges and universities are heading back to school, many are sounding the alarm as coronavirus cases were emerging just days into classes. At the University of Alabama, there were more than 500 cases. At Ohio State University, over 200 students were suspended for violating virus-related rules. Anna Knowles, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how back to school is going so far during the pandemic. Next, good news on the vaccine front. Moderna said that its experimental vaccine induced an immune response in people aged 56 and older. The immune response was comparable to those seen in younger adults. This is significant because there had been a concern that vaccines might not offer the same amount of protection to older adults. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, we know that COVID-19 hits minorities the hardest, but unfortunately, the data doesn't often show it. Many states are not collecting the race or ethnicity of coronavirus patients, which could make it harder to know the real impact on low-income communities. Tom Simonite, senior writer at Wired, joins us for how we need more targeted data collection of COVID patients. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They suspended more than 200 students. Again, that was before classes had started. And they put it in perspective, right? They have very large student population. I think it's like 70,000 kids. And so, you know, it is proportional to the size of the university. Joining us now is Hannah Knowles, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. Wanted to check in about how universities and colleges are doing amid the coronavirus pandemic. Obviously, everybody across the country is kind of doing it in a different way. There's a lot of campuses that are doing online instruction only, hoping to get kids back to campus later in the year, possibly. Some are doing hybrids, and there's still a number of campuses that are doing in-person instruction, or, or at least maybe they could be doing online instruction, but kids can still be moving into campus and to the dorms and whatnot. There's a lot of different things going on, but we're seeing a rise in cases on these campuses. I think there's more than 500 cases at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. There's just hundreds of kids getting this right now. So Hannah, tell us what's going on. I mean, I think, you know, like you said, campuses that have only been open for, in some cases, really classes haven't started yet. You know, kids have been moving in, but classes were just starting this week and they were already reporting hundreds of cases. And even the schools that have pulled back after seeing some of those clusters have continued to see a lot of positives because once you get it circulating, I mean, it's really hard to tamp it down once you pass, you know, a certain number of infections. And so like UNC, they ended up going back to online classes temporarily, but you know, it's still circulating on campus. And so I think it just kept rising, um, you know, even though they took these measures. Administrators there and, and the schools, they have a lot of rules in place to help try to limit some of this, but they're even suspending kids. As you mentioned, they're barely starting, haven't even started yet. They're already suspending students for virus-related violations. Ohio State announced earlier this week that they suspended more than 200 students. Again, that was before classes had started. And they put it in perspective, right? They have very large student population. I think it's like 70,000 kids. And so, you know, it is proportional to the size of the university. But yeah, I mean, I think that number was certainly, it stood out to me. It was one of the biggest, like, crackdowns that I've certainly seen 
And again, we're like barely into the school year. But even the small proportional number, it's not that much, thankfully. But the administrator, uh, administrators are even saying that even the small clusters could endanger the entire school year for other kids. I mean, if they're getting these small clusters, they're going to err on the side of caution and they're going to close things down. And you see some administrators kind of publicly being pushed to set kind of red lines where it's like, okay, if we cross this amount of infections in like a week, then we will seriously think about shutting down at least for some time. So Cornell, I think an administrator there said, you know, if we pass, you know, 250 cases within the space of a week, that's when we'd have to really think hard about how we move forward. And so I wrote about what's going on at Cornell, too, that students very much have that in mind, and they are actually becoming really vocal kind of enforcers of the coronavirus rules and calling out students who they see not wearing masks or not social distancing because they do not want to go home. Yeah, the students there at Cornell got an online petition going because I guess there's one person there as a freshman, she's a TikTok star, and she was going against some of the coronavirus rules. What happened in that case? So, I mean, the details are a little bit murky because the school is not commenting publicly on her case specifically, but there is a petition. Last I checked, it was almost 2,000 signatures. It was started by this coalition of concerned students, and they were calling for this freshman to be expelled. And again, this is before the start of classes. So I think just really quickly, we're seeing all of this snowball. And, you know, people are divided. I think for a lot of people, it's like these are teenagers who are trying to figure out adulthood. They're just learning how to navigate college and they're being expected to uphold these rules that just have totally transformed the college experience. And so I think a lot of people are saying, you know, let's not come down too hard on the students. Let's blame the administrators who decided to bring these kids back. Yeah. But at the same time, the kids have to have some level of personal responsibility if they're going to be interacting with each other. They're at risk, too, of getting sick. And, And thankfully, younger people don't get the most severe symptoms from COVID-19, but they're going to be around teachers, professors, other administrators, other people that work at the universities, and they can get in danger of getting this as well. In Michigan, there was dozens of professors that sent a letter out to the governor of Michigan so that they can mandate some things, you know, no face-to-face teaching, things like that. So the professors themselves are concerned about this as well. Professors, I know we've done reporting on the staff at these schools being concerned because they don't think that students are going to be careful. We see just like the surrounding towns in these college towns that often are very kind of intertwined with and interdependent on the colleges, right? The colleges provide a lot of jobs, like they want them to be functioning. But at the same time, the colleges are bringing all these kids in from other states, maybe that are hotspots. Hannah Knowles, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was a phase one study, small number of people. And not only the size is a factor here, but also what they were looking at. The researchers were mainly testing whether the vaccine was safe and whether it induced an immune response as measured by blood samples. Joining us now is Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Sure, thanks for having me. Getting some more information out of the Moderna vaccine candidate, a preliminary study is indicating that the vaccine produced 
similar levels of antibodies in seniors as it is in younger subjects that have been uh, testing the vaccine. So that's good news, especially since our older uh, Americans, older people in general, are more susceptible to more severe symptoms from COVID-19. So, Peter, tell us a little bit more about what we're learning from the Moderna vaccine. Well, as you pointed out, one of the issues with the pandemic is that one of the biggest groups that seems to suffer the most from infection are older adults. So they have higher rates of hospitalization and death. So at first glance, I think most people would think, well, a vaccine would be best for them. If we have a successful vaccine, that it would make sense to get it to older people and help the most vulnerable. But one of the issues, and it's not just unique to coronavirus vaccines, but one of the issues with vaccines in general is that they don't always produce the strongest immune response in older people compared with younger people. And that's just, I think, it's a function of just how the immune system changes over time. So older people's immune system may not be the strongest, and so therefore a vaccine that tries to trigger that immune system doesn't always have the desired effect. So one of the concerns that people have had is that in this effort to develop these various coronavirus vaccines, that maybe they end up working, but only for younger people and for older people, they don't work as much. And again, as you point out preliminarily, in this early study, the results seem to show that the immune responses to the Moderna vaccine among older people, people 56 and older, were roughly comparable to immune responses that were previously reported for people between the ages of 18 and 55. Now, this information we're getting from the phase one part of the study. I know Moderna is going into phase three trials now. From my understanding, they have enrolled more than 13,000 volunteers, but they want to get up to 30,000 volunteers. But this information is coming from the earliest stage of their testing. For that reason, it should be taken with, you know, a bit of a grain of salt in the sense that it was a phase one study, small number of people. And not only the size is a factor here, but also what they were looking at. The researchers were mainly testing whether the vaccine was safe and whether it induced an immune response as measured by blood samples. But what the early study doesn't tell us is whether the vaccine actually protects you if you later become exposed to the virus? Does it stop you from either getting infected or from getting a severe form of the disease? And so that latter part, that's like the key question that's being tested in this bigger study. And yes, they're aiming to enroll up to 30,000 people. This was a study that just started a few weeks ago. And they hope that, you know, within several months, they could know whether the people in the study who got the vaccine have a lower rate of disease than the people who are not vaccinated in the study. Yeah, they're looking to have some early results, hopefully as early as October. And then, uh, you know, if things look good, then the U.S. can push for some emergency authorization use of the vaccine at that point. We did talk about how the U.S. has already agreed to buy about 100 million doses of the Moderna vaccine. They have an option to buy another 400 million doses. So, Things are moving on that front right there, but, you know, we'll still have to see what comes of these phase three trials right now. So there are other vaccines that are in the similar ballpark as far as how far along they are in testing. And so there's another similarly designed vaccine to the Moderna one. This one developed by Pfizer and a German company. 
that started a big phase three study also in late July. And so it's possible that they could have results around the same time and if positive, the potential for approval. And and as far as the supply, there have now been several companies that have signed supply contracts with the U.S. government that generally envision at least 100 million doses initially and then with options for more. And so we still have yet to see whether it's going to be one or two vaccines that are very successful and therefore account for the bulk of the supply or if it's more that would account for the supply. Peter Loftus, healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. When people who have low access to healthcare get sick, they don't tend to go to the doctor as readily as people who live in rich areas. And so many coronavirus cases, we just don't hear about them at the public health authority level. Joining us now is Tom Simonite. Senior writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you for having me. Throughout this coronavirus pandemic, one of the biggest hurdles that we've been trying to get over is accurate data collection. First off, it was things about positive cases from state to state and how all over the place that was. Another one of the problems that we're having here is collecting data on race or ethnicity of coronavirus patients. And we know that coronavirus is hitting minority communities pretty hard, but we're not getting the right data for this, and it's making it harder to know the true impact on these lower-income communities. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about how hard it is to get some of this data going. One of the big challenges of COVID response in the United States is a lack of data, and we don't have enough data on where the disease is spreading, what's happening to people, and it is worse for lower income communities, communities that are more ethnically diverse and have more minority people in them. And unfortunately, these communities that are being overlooked by the data collection are also those where the disease is the worst, where there are the most cases and people are getting the sickest. Tell me a little bit about some of the barriers. Why is it so hard to get some of this data and why is it hitting these lower income communities so hard? So a lot of this comes from the deep history of health inequality in the United States. In the U.S., the way health insurance works, a lot of people just can't afford it or they happen to live in an area that because the hospital can't make as much money from the poor community, you know, it won't be built there. And so when people who have low access to healthcare get sick, they don't tend to go to the doctor as readily as people who live in rich areas. And so many coronavirus cases, we just don't hear about them at the public health authority level because people aren't going to get the care. There are systems in place to track disease outbreaks, and some of those are in place already to track the flu outbreak that we have every year. But the recent study looked at how one of those systems performed in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and it showed that although this flu surveillance system did a pretty good job of warning when a lot of people had a flu-like illness in a rich area, it didn't provide very good warning for the poor areas, seemingly because people in the poor areas just didn't show up in the health system. And so no one at the public health agency knew anything about it. And that's a real challenge right now. There was also another report out of the University of Minnesota's Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. And they were talking about how, you know, a lack of this kind of data is affecting the minority groups and limiting the U.S. response to being able to help out there. More than half of the COVID-19 cases that were reported to the government 
through the end of May didn't include race or ethnicity. So if you don't have that data, it's going to be really hard to drill down. In the article, you talk a little bit about San Francisco and the Mission District and how they set up this testing for Latino residents there. And basically, they found out that, you know, about 40 percent of all the people that got tested there were Latino, but 95 percent of them tested positive, meaning that community was just being kind of taken over by COVID-19. So after several months of the pandemic, I think a lot of people are aware that minority communities are being hit hardest, but that's not enough. You know, we need to be able to measure it accurately if we're going to respond and, and help people and stop the disease from spreading. And so a very interesting exercise took place here in San Francisco, where the Mission District is a real Latinx cultural center. And community groups there and the local hospital system, which is part of UCSF, were concerned. You know, anecdotally, it was very obvious from looking at the waiting room and the hospital beds that a lot of people in the Latinx community were getting this disease, but they wanted to measure how much. And so they picked out a 14-block square census tract in the heart of the neighborhood and they put up loads of notices and they did loads of outreach through community groups and all kinds of other channels and just said, look, everyone who lives in this zone, come get tested. It's free. They went to some effort to make clear that they would not be asking about immigration status because that is a deterrent. Some people, they worry that they'll come to the notice of authorities. They just tested everyone. They wanted to get the baseline, like how many people actually have this disease, even if they don't know it. And yes, the results were very striking. As you said, 40% of the people they tested, it was about 4,000 people that got tested. 40% of them were Latino, but 95% of the positive cases came from that group. And it really painted this picture of just two different worlds, really. You know, people in the Latino community were living in a much worse pandemic than people outside of that group, probably because they're more likely to be in these lower status jobs where, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm lucky enough that I can basically do my job from home pretty much okay. You know, it's inconvenient, but I can do it. But if you work in the restaurant industry and hospitality in a store, you know, you might have to keep going out and that's when you're going to get exposed. So is there an effort to start compiling this data more now? Do we know if states or the federal government is trying to focus in on this data? Like a lot of things about the pandemic response in the United States, you know, it's a real kind of jigsaw puzzle and none of the pieces seem to match. So you do have some very promising local efforts like the ones here in San Francisco where they did that study that I mentioned. There has been a follow-up more recently this month in San Francisco where they put up free testing stations at some of the transit stations. So people who were still having to go out to work maybe didn't have much time in their schedule, but they would walk past that testing booth and you know maybe they could spare five minutes on the way home to get tested. And that was a way to increase data collection. But other states and cities have not done so well. And there hasn't been a lot of direction from the top, from the federal authorities. And, and that was something that the University of Minnesota report that you mentioned flagged. You know, you really need to have a coordinated response to take on a virus like this, which, you know, will travel from place to place. You, you can't just do really well in your city. You need the cities around you, the state around you, and the country around you to also help. Tom Simonite, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was 
user daily dot.